You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Uh, we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 6 to 12 here this morning. We are rounding the corner here to wrapping up First uh, John. This has been a series uh, through this book that uh, we've kind of themed authentic, what it means to be an authentic Christian. John addresses this many times uh, in these scriptures, uh, what it means to authentically believe and the evidence of that that should be in our lives, uh, but also the assurance uh, of our salvation that comes from that as well. And so as we're looking at these verses here today, 1 John 5, 6 to 12, as John is, uh, he's beginning to close out this letter to his beloved yet struggling church uh, in this last chapter, he closes out this letter like a defense lawyer. He closes it out like a defense lawyer in a court of law, and he's arguing the case for faith in Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. Now, this is a case that is more important than any earthly case could ever be, a case that has the repercussions of eternal life and eternal death. And as John has just spent four chapters arguing for authentic faith in, in Jesus Christ, and, and as he's, he's been arguing for the case of the assurance of eternal life that can only be found through truly believing in him, as he only has a few paragraphs left, John begins to close out his defense. And he closes it out by calling the most infinitely compelling and eternity-rattling eyewitnesses to the stand. Friends, as John's case for Christ throughout this book has already been so convincing and so airtight, he now ends this case with the most powerful and assurance-inducing testimonies that could ever be heard and believed. Friends, in many court cases, the final judgment and the sentence is often determined by the testimony of the eyewitnesses, the testimony of those who were there, those who saw, those who heard, uh, the witnesses of the whole thing. And so as John aims to fully prove the authentic case for Christ, he aims to do so through authentic testimony. And that's the title of the sermon here this morning. Friends, as the word testimony or testify is used in this little section more than eight times. Testimony is everything. And so as John takes authentic testimony into the courtroom of our hearts, what we do with the testimony of these witnesses we're about to hear means absolutely everything. What you do with it means the difference between eternal love or eternal wrath eternal freedom or eternal judgment, eternal life or eternal death. And so friends, let us carefully listen to these witnesses that John calls to the stand here today. Let us hear their testimony and believe. 1 John 5, verses 6 to 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. 
For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let's pray. Our great God, we come before you, filled by your Spirit, covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We've got your word open before us, that word that goes out and does exactly that you determine for it to do, that does not return empty. And so we pray that by the power of your Spirit and the power of your word together, that you would impress it into our hearts even further today, that you would search our hearts that you would reveal to us the things that need to be changed by the power of your spirit within. We do pray as we behold Jesus Christ, the gospel of the only Son of God. We pray that as we behold him, we would be changed as we, as we behold his glory. And so we pray as a people that have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we would be here to worship, that you would speak to us through your word and that we would respond in repentance and faith and that we would just love you and live for you all the more. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we approach these witnesses and their testimony concerning Christ, let's remember a little bit of the background going on here in the, in the story here of 1 John. Let us remember here that this beloved church to which John is writing, uh, they're a church that is enduring a struggle for their faith. Uh, they just went through a season of false teaching and false teachers among them, and it nearly destroyed their church. The main heresies that were, were really ripping them apart all centered around a faulty theology of who Jesus Christ is. There's been clues in the text that have led us to this, and also as we look at the contextual history of that time, there was early forms of Gnostic philosophies at play and, and pagan beliefs that were being mixed into the Christian faith, always dangerous. And what popped out on the other side of all that was a false view of Jesus, a false Jesus who they often taught wasn't really God or a false Jesus that wasn't really a man. In fact, if you look at, at the historical theology of a man main, named Serinthus, I've got a picture here a man named Serinthus. Uh, he lived during this time, during the first and second century. Serinthus uh, was one of those heretical influencers of this time. And he was teaching a heretical theology of Jesus Christ. Serinthus taught that the world was created by angels instead of God. He taught that Christ's birth was not defined, or was not divine. It was rather that Jesus was just biologically born to Joseph and Mary. And he also believed about Jesus falsely that Jesus was basically just possessed by God's divine power for three years of his ministry. 
and that this divine power of Christ came down upon him upon his baptism, but then departed from Jesus upon his suffering and his death on the cross. And this is all due to some of the Gnostic notions of that time. They believed that uh, the spiritual could not mix with the material, that God was too holy to truly mix with an evil humanity, which ended up in the heresy of all heresies, a faulty view of Jesus Christ, squarely undermining the primary doctrine that Jesus was the God-man, meaning that he was 100% God and he was 100% man. In fact, his false teaching was such a concern to John back then that Christian history tells us, and this picture is, is really painting this picture, that when John heard that when Serinthus was in town, when he was in Ephesus, John was sure that the walls and the pillars of the city would collapse upon him because he was espousing such a false theology of Jesus. And so as this was the sort of false teaching that would have been ruminating in the Ephesian church to which John is writing. John wants to put a final nail in the coffin of such heresy. And so therefore, as he's closing out this letter to the church, we see him bringing four witnesses to the stand in our text today. In fact, we're going to hear four testimonies here. We're going to hear the historical testimony. We're going to hear the spiritual testimony. We're going to hear the internal testimony and the eternal testimony. And friends, what you do with these testimonies means the difference between eternal life and eternal death. And so the first witness that John calls to the stand here are the water and the blood in verse 6. The water and the blood. This is one witness. Verse 6. It says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He's careful to say as well, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. So friends, when it comes down to the truth about Jesus, we must examine the historical testimony. We must examine the historical testimony. Now, initially, we might wonder, what in the world is John talking about here as he's using this language, water and the blood? What does that mean? Especially as John says, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. John is obviously making a pretty serious point here, but what does it mean? And friends, if this is something that you are initially confused about, you're in good company, you're not alone because this water and blood stuff has been understood quite differently and interpreted somewhat differently by Christians over the years. In fact, by my count, there are three main interpretations to consider. The first being that some, some would believe that the water and the blood are referring to that event when Jesus' dead body is hanging upon the cross and how in John's gospel it says... In John 19.34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. So some think that John is connecting the water and the blood here in 1 John to the blood and the water in his gospel account of Christ's death. And in order to do so, they're, they're doing this to prove Christ's humanity, that he really died. Now, a second interpretation believes that the water and the blood are connected to the sacraments of baptism and communion within the church, that, that as we as the church partake of these ordinances, we testify to the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, both of those have some 
valid connections for sure, but I, I believe the most faithful interpretation here is a third one that interprets this water and the blood as referring to Christ's very own baptism and death. With the water referring to his, his baptism by John out by the River Jordan as Jesus begins his earthly ministry, and that the blood is in reference to his death on the cross as he completes his mission on this earth. That these words, water and blood, are symbolic of his life and ministry. These are symbolic words that are basically saying, this is he who came by water, meaning his baptism, and blood by his death, Jesus Christ. Now, as you think about the context of water and blood, being witnesses to testifying to who Jesus really is, both the baptism of Christ and the death of Christ, the water and the blood, what we see going on here, these, these elements are really standing as the bookends of his earthly ministry, his earthly mission. So baptism is, this water is, baptism is speaking about the beginning of his earthly mission, and death is speaking about the completion of his earthly ministry. I mean, just, just even looking at your Bibles, look back to what, what little is really said about Jesus until he was like 30 or 33 years old when he inaugurated his earthly ministry. And that began at his very baptism. That as many were going out to be baptized by John for the repentance of sins, all of a sudden Jesus comes onto the scene and he asks John the baptizer to baptize him in order to fulfill all righteousness. And how the Bible says in Matthew 3.16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And then listen very carefully to what God the Father says. He says, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Friends, that is the miraculous testimony of God the Father confirming and affirming his son, his, his beloved son. And so this begins his earthly ministry. And so then as you fast forward over three years of Jesus's earthly ministry to that, that final day on the, on the cross when he is scorned, when he is beaten, when he is bloodied and he's hanging on the cross, blood is pouring out from the nails in his wrists, blood is pouring out from the nails in his feet, the wounds in his back, the crown of thorns crushed into his head, even that spear in his side pouring out blood and water. This is the testimony of the blood that John is talking about here. And so we see these bookends. We see his earthly ministry, his earthly mission coming to completion through his death as the Father pours out his fierce judgment and wrath upon his very Son for our sins and how Jesus proclaims in his final dying breaths, he says, it is finished, and he gives up his spirit and he breathes his last. Remember at the point of his death, it says in Matthew 27, 51 to 52, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
And the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Friends, as the, this was the most eternity-altering moment in all history, God made it very evident through these miraculous events that Jesus, again, is his true Son. We see the curtain in the temple tearing in two from top to bottom, symbolizing that Christ has made the way into the holy of holies, that he is the final sacrifice through his blood. We also see how all creation rocked and shook at his dying, how in response to the creator truly dying, how the creation was affected and responded to his death. And then also how some of the dead saints rose from the grave miraculously. And then as was witnessed here in the eyewitness testimony of the centurions who who just beat and speared Jesus, as they saw all of this, they could not deny that Jesus was the very Son of God. I mean, just listen to their testimony in verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, They were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. Truly this was the Son of God. So not only did God confirm Jesus as his his son at his water baptism, but he also confirmed he was his son through the testimony of the blood as, as witnessed by these Roman centurions. Truly this was the Son of God. Friends, this is the historical testimony of Jesus Christ. The water and the blood that is on the stand is the historical bookends framing the very testimony of Jesus Christ's life and mission. Those three years of him doing his work right before us and showing the heart of God right before us As Jesus worked, so many miracles confirming his deity, right? As he turned water to wine, as he walked on water, as he calmed the sea, as he fed the 5,000, and then he did it again, as he healed the lame, as he opened the eyes of the blind, as he healed the lepers, as he healed the sick, as he raised the dead, as he had compassion on the crowns, as he dined with sinners and tax collectors, as he taught about the kingdom of God, as he called his disciples, disciples, as he turned the tables, as he was betrayed and arrested and beaten and whipped and flogged and nailed to a cross to be lifted up amongst the wicked, and as he truly died for the forgiveness of our sins. That is the water and the blood, and that is taking the stand to testify with full confidence that Jesus is real. Jesus is the Son of God. He is who he says he is. He is the very Son of God, which are confirmations of his humanity and his deity that he really truly lived, that he really truly died. And friends, these were two realities that were so crucial for the church to understand back then, and it's still so crucial for us to understand to this day, that as John goes on to say, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood, we need to understand both. We need to believe in his life and his death, his active obedience and his passive obedience. We need to know this to get the whole gospel, the testimony of his life. 
And so as the blood and the water take the stand as witnesses for faith in Jesus Christ, this even takes place within the courtrooms of our own hearts and minds. And so we need to examine the historical testimony, the water and the blood, to hear who Jesus really is in his life and in his death. You know, as much as this was under attack back in John's day, it's still so under attack today with so many out there trying to undermine the historical record of Jesus Christ, with so many scholars out there trying to explain away the deity of Christ or even the humanity of Christ, especially as the Easter season is approaching, there's always an influx of those television shows or, or Netflix specials that are, that are going to try to explain away who Jesus really was. They're going to say, no, Jesus really didn't walk on water. He was, he was walking on a sandbar. They're going to say, no, Jesus really didn't raise from the grave. He just, he just passed out for a while and then woke up later. They're going to say, no, his body was stolen. He didn't rise from the grave. Jesus wasn't really God. He was just a good moral teacher, etc., and etc. Friends, as John has been arguing throughout this letter already, the primary doctrine of belief in Jesus Christ, the most crucial theology that is always under attack, and the most essential theology that we need to wrap our minds around and our hearts around is having a right understanding of who Jesus Christ is. That's a right Christology. With so many false religions out there today, with even so many pseudo-Christian cults out there today who are teaching false gospels about a faulty Jesus, who they always target and what they always fall short of is what they do with Jesus Christ. I mean, just think about it. The Muslims believe in Jesus, but they only believe him as a prophet. They reject the idea that he's God, nor do they believe that he really died on a cross. When you think about the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses, who don't, they don't truly believe that Jesus is God. They believe that he was either a created being or he's some kind of a lower form of a God or he was an angel. Think about the universalists of today who think that Jesus is whoever and whatever we want to make him out to be, that Jesus is really just a concept. Think about the atheists who deny him altogether. Friends, as John puts the water and the blood on the stand, they both say with absolute certainty that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is the one who truly ministered to us while he was here on earth, and he truly died the death that we all deserved. The one who perfectly and fully atoned for our sins to bring life eternal if you repent and believe. Friends, we need to continually be examining the historical testimony. Now, as John continues with this cosmic court scene, the next witness that he calls to the stand is none other than the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 6 to 9, and the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. 
For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Friends, in order to truly know Jesus, we must receive the spiritual testimony. And so with the historical testimony still echoing in the courtroom, God the Spirit takes the stand to testify to the truth of Jesus Christ, as John says, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And what we see on such beautiful and holy display here is that God, the Holy Spirit, lives and loves to testify to the truth about Jesus Christ. Because why? Because as John says, he is the spirit of truth. He is the spirit of truth. He's not the spirit of error, nor could he ever be the spirit of of error. No, he is the spirit of truth. That's absolute, pure, and perfect truth. Just as God throughout the entirety of scriptures always testifies to being the God of truth, God is the one who never lies. God is the truth through and through. Numbers 23, 19. God is not like us. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man, that he should change his mind. In fact, the scriptures teach that it's impossible for God to lie. He's a God that never regrets. He's a God that cannot deny himself. As you look from beginning to end in this Bible, what it says is that God is truth. He is the whole truth, and he is nothing but the truth. As Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus himself bore witness about himself being the spirit or being, being that who is dwelt with perfect truth. He also testifies this about the Holy Spirit. In John 16, 13, it says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Friends, the same Holy Spirit who overshadowed Mary to produce the first or to produce the Christ child, and the same Spirit who descended upon Christ at his baptism to confirm him as a Son of God, is the same Holy Spirit who always lives and loves to testify to the truth of Christ. That's what he does. Friends, one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit within the Trinity is to testify to the truth of Jesus Christ. If you remember when Jesus was teaching his disciples about this coming of the Holy Spirit to come, do you remember what he said about the role of the Holy Spirit? He said in, in John chapter 15, verse 26, he said, but when the helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit bears witness about Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus calls him the spirit of truth here. It's because it's who he is and it's what he does. And the action of that truth is always to bear witness about who? It's about Jesus. Friends, the Holy Spirit is the star witness in this great and urgent cosmic court case. 
And so as he speaks on the stand and as he testifies to the truth, what he says is absolute gold. And he says it is the truth and it is the only truth, so help himself. That this Jesus, he's the son. He's God. Friends, I don't know if you're aware of uh, the Alex Murdaugh murder case that just concluded this past week in the United States. There's this middle-aged man named Alex Murdaugh, and he was on trial for the cold-blooded murder of his wife and his son in South Carolina. Whether you know about it or not, what was so disturbing and revealing is about the lie that this man was living and how many lies he was weaving from the witness box as the court case examined his years of lying and stealing from his own clients to feed his own obsession with greed and drugs how there was such overwhelming evidence in this case. And it put him at the very scene of the crime where he shot his wife and his son. And as he took the stand to defend himself, he didn't finally break down and admit to the truth, but rather he he just kept on lying and he kept on denying everything. Friends, there's a reason that defense lawyers don't recommend that their clients take the stand to defend themselves because they end up really revealing the truth through the cracks of their lies, the crevices that is between their lying character. By the way, he was found guilty, double life sentence. But the point being, friends, is that as the truth about Christ is so often on trial in this world and in our hearts, the defense team doesn't have to worry when the Spirit takes the stand. Now, when God says, I'll testify about myself, you want him to take the stand. You want God to defend and contend for himself. And you want the God of truth who spoke all things into existence to speak because when he speaks, he always contends and confirms and affirms and testifies about the very truth of his son, Jesus Christ. I mean, what better witness could there ever be For the Spirit to say about Jesus, he's the very Son of God, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the Lord, he's the King, he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. And this is the testimony of the one who never lies. And so friends, the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And so now, as John has established that the water and the blood and the Spirit are witnesses to the truth of Christ, look at what he says next. He says in verse 7, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these agree. Friends, what's so awesome about this is that the God of truth and the truth of the historical record never contradict one another. There is never a disconnect when you hold them side by side. And this is not that worldly colloquialism that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. No, friends, when it comes to truth, there is only absolute truth. And absolute truth never contradicts. And so what God the Spirit testifies as the truth about Jesus and what the world reveals about the truth of Jesus is a perfect, untarnished harmony of truth. They agree. I mean, this should remind us. Even of how judgments are to be made with regard to evidence in the Bible. 
That as Matthew 18, 16 says, a charge is to be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The defense that God is making here for Jesus is a threefold witness, the spirit and the water and the blood. And as he says, these three agree. They are corroborating witnesses, meaning that they're all saying the exact same thing. There's not a bit of a difference in their stories whatsoever. They are in perfect agreement. I mean, just think about how in a court of law, how eyewitness testimony can so often differ from witness to witness. How even if people try to plan to tell the same story, it actually comes out quite different as each one testifies. It's quite incredible how different one person can recollect a story compared to the next guy. But not so with God. Not so with the Holy Spirit and the water and the blood. They all agree perfectly. And friends, when you've got this kind of testimonial evidence, what's left but to believe? And that's why John says here in verse 9, he says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Right? If we, if we readily believe everyday people and their claims of truth, how much greater do we need to believe in God's own threefold testimony? As he says, this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. It's all God's testimony. And so we've got the historic witness, and we've got the spirit's witness. But then on top of that, we also have what's coming next in the internal witness. Friends, point three is that we need to believe the internal testimony. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Friends, as the Spirit always lives to testify to the truth of Christ, he also lives within believers to bring an internal testimony that we cannot deny. As John says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whose testimony is it? Again, it's the Spirit's testimony within us. Friends, as faith is a spiritual gift, it's precisely because the Spirit indwells us that we can actually believe and testify to the truth ourselves. I mean, just think about how Paul talks about the role of the Holy Spirit when it comes down to believing anything. If you go to 1 Corinthians 2, 9 to 16, we have it up here, but it says, Paul's writing, he says, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Now listen closely here. He says, these things God has revealed to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 
Friends, as we have been given the, eternal, or the internal testimony of God, as we have given the testimony of God through the very word of God, the one who was written the very word of God resides within. And the way that we can only truly believe and understand the testimony of God is because of the spirit that resides within us. Friends, we don't naturally believe. We don't naturally testify to the truth of Jesus Christ. No, as Paul goes on in verse 14, he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're, they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Friends, we are so unable within and of ourselves to believe and to testify and so God has to put his witness, his spiritual witness, on the stand in our very hearts. And it's his spirit who testifies with our spirit for us to judge all things, for us to truly believe in Jesus. As John says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Friends, that testimony is God within us. That means that we have an eternal witness at all times, every day, who continually points us to Jesus Christ, that he is the Son, that he is God. So friends, we got to make sure that we're listening to the Spirit. That means that we open up the Spirit's Word every day. We open up our Bibles, and the Spirit speaks to us through the very Word of God. Open up your Bible every day. He's speaking, he's testifying, and he's saying to us, believe, believe, believe. And friends, what I love about this is because I know myself all too well. I know that if it was up to me to believe on my own strength and my own wisdom, I wouldn't. I couldn't. No, it's all spiritually discerned and how thankful we need to be that God himself puts his spirit within us to testify to the truth of Jesus. And through that, he gets all the glory. And then John goes on to warn that whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Friends, to reject the testimony of God is to reject truth altogether. To reject the testimony of God is unbelief. To reject the testimony of God is to try to make God a liar. Friends, the evidence is in and the testimony is perfect and undeniable. To reject the historical testimony and the spiritual testimony and the inward testimony is to reject God's overwhelming testimony concerning his son. And if you remain in that state, it is not going to go well for you. In fact, it's going to be catastrophic, to say the least. Friends, if you don't believe the overwhelming testimony of the reality of your need for the Son of God, you will not have life. You will remain dead in your sin. And you will suffer because of your sin forever. Just as John says here at the end of verse 12. He says, whoever does not have the Son does not have life. To warn 
the unbeliever, to warn those who have heard the testimony and choose to reject it. Friends, to warn unbelievers about the wrath to come is the most loving thing you could ever do. Like, just think about it. If you're, if you're in BC in the summer and there's forest fires and you're on a highway and you know that there's a forest fire and somebody's driving into that forest fire, you're going to stop them and you're going to warn them. There's a forest fire. Don't go that way. Friends, as John is often called the apostle of love, the most loving thing he's doing right here is warning unbelievers and rejecters of Christ to show them the gravity of their error. Friends, as we embrace the internal testimony, our hearts are changed towards those who don't have it, to those who don't have life in Christ. When you truly understand it yourself, your heart changes. You see them for how they really are. It's those people that are driving into the forest fire. You've got to stop them as much as you can. We need to go to them. We need to testify to the truth. Don't go that way. Turn around. Stop going that way. Turn to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Because if you keep going that way, that way leads to eternal death. Charles Spurgeon got this. As he so famously said, if if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. That's the heart. This is the heart of those who truly believe. And friends, that's going to cost you something. That's going to cost you loved ones. That's going to cost you friends as they continue to reject you and Jesus Christ. But I guarantee that you that if you live like this, people are going to get saved. People are going to repent. People are going to trust in Jesus. People are going to love God as you warn them about the disaster to come. And then you share with them the best news ever. That Christ did come by the water and the blood. And he came to free us from our sin, from this world, from Satan, to bring us eternal life in him. Which brings us to the last testimony, which is the testimony of eternity. That we must embrace the eternal testimony. Verse 11 says, and this is the testimony. That God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Friends, not only do we have history and the Spirit and, and the internal witness that all overwhelmingly testify to the Son of God, but we have the testimony of eternal life that is in the Son. He says, this is the testimony. That God gave us eternal life. Where do we find that life? We find it in the Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Friends, the only way to salvation is through the very Son of God. The only way to eternal life is through Jesus Christ. There's only one way. 
As Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. He also said, no man comes to the Father except through me. He is the only way. He's not one of many ways. He is the only way. You can only find eternal life through him. You cannot find eternal life through Allah of Islam. You cannot find eternal life from Buddha or the millions of gods of Hinduism. You can't have eternal life through Zen Taoism or or New Age mysticism. You can't gain eternal life through the Jewish law. You can't have eternal life through all of the false Christs and the false gospels of all the pseudo-Christian counterfeits and cults. Those who are teaching that Jesus was just a man or Jesus was an angel or Jesus is a lesser God. Now, the only way to eternal life is through this Jesus, this very Son of God, that the perfect testimony of the Bible and the testimony of all history and the testimony of the Spirit and the testimony of the church, all eternity points in the end to Jesus Christ. It all comes down to eternity. We sang last week a new new song and one of the lines is, we know how the story ends, right? Eternity is written in the scriptures. We know that we will be with Christ for all eternity. We know how the story ends. Eternity stands as the witness. But yet we get so consumed and distracted by this life. Right? As Job said, uh, life is but a breath in comparison to eternity. Our days pass away like smoke. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. James says in 4.14, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Friends, all eternity is in the balance and eternity will stand as the final witness. And friends, the gravest mistake we could ever make is to just merely live for the now when eternity is at stake. Just as Jesus said in Matthew 6, 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? As whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life, whoever has the Son has life. Friends, I know that most of us here this morning know the Son. We know Jesus. We believe his testimony. We have the Son. We have eternal life. But in this room with many people here this morning, there are going to be those who don't believe. There's even going to be some of those who think they believe, but they really don't. There are those who don't have the Son, and because of that, they don't have the life. And so, friend, if that is you... You need to have the Son. All of these witnesses cry out to you. They're standing before you today to come to Jesus and find everlasting life in him. That means you need to turn from your sin. It's called repentance. Turn from your life of sin. And turn to Jesus Christ alone. 
This Jesus who stands as the very Son of God and God himself, the one who came to live for you, the one who came to die for you so that you could have life, the one who rose from the grave conquering sin and death and this world, the one who comes to save and forgive forever. As John has presented his case and as he has stacked his bench with star witnesses, with the authentic testimony. And as we examine it, and as we receive it, and we believe it, and we embrace it. Friends, the holy gavel has fallen. And it was never a question. The holy gavel has fallen for Jesus Christ, for the very Son of God. What you do with him means the difference between eternal life or eternal death. He is the Son of God. Believe. Let's pray. Our God, we come before you again. As we can just picture this great cosmic courtroom, and as we can picture these witnesses taking the stand, oh God, there is such overwhelming evidence that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is God, that He lived for us, that He died in our place, that He rose from the grave. As we think about the water and the blood and His years of ministry, His years of pointing us to the kingdom of God, to salvation in God alone. We do pray that as we are those who are gathered in that, those who are filled by the eyewitness testimony of the Spirit, we do pray that even if there's someone here that is not sure, someone here who is not confident, that even today that they would examine themselves, examine the evidence, examine the eyewitness testimony. And as we remember and as we examine, as those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus, we celebrate, we rejoice, we remember, and we cannot wait to be in your presence one day. But for the time that we have here, convict our hearts for those who do not know this. Give us boldness to go out this week into our workplaces, our schools, our homes, wherever we may be that we would testify to the truth of Jesus Christ, that we would warn those of the wrath to come, that we would also follow up with the beauty and the joy and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that they can be saved by repenting and believing in him. We know that the mission is for us and we submit to your will and your plan. Use us this week and from here on out to send your message into this world that the water and the blood and the spirit agree that all history and your spiritual testimony, the internal testimony and the eternal testimony all stand pointing us to Jesus Christ that we would believe and we pray it in his name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing our closing song.